Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. No fire, no thunder. Today I'm joined by Alistair Hay, OBE, a British toxicologist and professor of environmental toxicology, who has worked for several decades on issues of chemical warfare and biological warfare and other related and less related aspects of toxicology. Alistair uh, has played an active role in the emergence of the Chemical Weapons Convention and also in the support of the global prohibition against chemical and biological weapons more broadly. Utilising his skills as both a teacher and a toxicologist in helping assure against the use of chemical weapons by educating scientists and also educating practitioners. In 2015, Alistair was awarded the OPCW Hague Award by the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, and we're very lucky to have him on the show today. So Alistair, uh, welcome to the show. I guess we've got a lot of ground to cover today. You very kindly agreed to do a biographical account of your engagement with chemical and biological weapon related issues. It's an area in which you've had expansive engagement of, of various types. And so I guess we should get uh, right into it to try and keep us within the hour. I thought I'd start with a question which is perhaps a little bit unfair. Uh, it's one of those things where, when asked, you know, what do you do? It's one of those things that could be difficult to respond to. But nonetheless, here we are. What is a toxicologist? Well, really, I suppose I'm interested in how chemicals work. I'm interested in the mechanisms I want to know what it is about the structure of a particular chemical that makes it work because I have a chemistry background. But I'm also interested in what it is that disrupts the mechanisms in our body um, so much that it ends up making somebody ill. So it's about understanding the way in which something interacts with the body and disturbs its functioning and that results in some ill health. But with the sort of background I have, because I started as a chemist, I then did biochemistry, I worked at London Zoo for five years in a research institute, and I was able to do evolutionary work. I was on trawlers in the North Sea getting fish samples on occasions. Really, really cold it was. All I could look forward to was the mug of steaming hot tomato soup that uh, the person in the, the kitchen would bring up every hour or so. And I can remember trying to encourage the odd large bird, a penguin um, or a pelican, to donate some blood. Um, <laughs> some of these birds have enormous wing veins, so getting blood was very easy. But I then moved on to an animal physiology department and then eventually chemical pathology, where I was able to focus much more on the toxicology. So if you like, I've got a 
potpourri um, yes. of expertise, all of which feeds in to enable me to do what I do. Um, so I'm not a medic, but I'm as close to medicine as I could possibly want to be. But I've got a lot of the background experience that enables me to understand how chemicals work and whether somebody's illness can be explained by the exposure they have experienced. So essentially, that's what I do. Great. So during your career, there's been several types of of work you've done. Um, There's been research of scientific nature. Uh, There's also been an expert role where you provided technical evidence or judgment on certain things. There's been teaching as well as part of your academic role and also as part of your later engagement with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And of course, particularly in the earlier stages of your career, there was there was campaigning. Uh, when you became interested in these issues, this was you know, before the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, was agreed and then came into force. So how did you first become interested and involved in the issue of chemical and biological weapons more broadly? It's a strange old subject, I think, dedicate one's time to. So what drove you and how did it come about? It actually came about through a comment from my late first wife. I I grew up in Southern Africa um, and all through my university career. I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement, but I was also involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I was on a number of demonstrations, arrested on one and picketing outside the American embassy regularly uh, on a Tuesday uh, lunchtime against the Vietnam War. And it got to a point where my my wife said, please don't go on any more of these demonstrations. And I said, okay, um, I I won't. But I did, um, because something would get to me uh, about the situation. And I felt that being present was the, the way to demonstrate how I felt. And so I was on an a demo. Well, it was a picket, really. It was a, a, a night vigil outside the South African embassy, and we were standing there with candles. And the young woman next to me, standing next to me, and was picked on by this chap who was clearly drunk. So I told him to back off. And the next thing I knew, I was punched in the mouth. And I went reeling backwards. There were lots of police there standing between us and the embassy and they pounced on him and said they would take care of him. Do you want to press charges? I said, no, you deal with him. But I was aware that I was developing a really thick lip. So my anxiety was not about the guy um, who punched me. It was about how I was going to explain this to my wife. And when I got home, I was expecting the dressing down and it duly came. And she was so exasperated with me. And she turned and she said, for goodness sake, she said, all these other people are standing on picket lines, going on demos. Why don't you do something using your expertise? You know, do something different. Um, find a niche, find a way that you can contribute in ways that others can't. 
And that sparked something in me. And I was involved, as I said, in the anti-Vietnam War movement. So I started looking at the use of defoliants in Vietnam, briefing myself on this. And then I started doing various articles for, for newspapers, national newspapers, um, and for the science journal Nature. And that then became a way in which I started looking at the way chemistry um, and politics came together and how chemistry, I felt, could be misused for um, warfare. And so the work on the herbicides then led to more general involvement with chemical weapons because I then got involved with um, some other major players in the chemical weapons field. Julian Perry Robinson was the most important and uh, a fellow colleague, Stephen Rose, who was a professor at the Open University at the time. And we formed a group and we were concerned about what seemed to be the UK's position at the time. The UK for many years had been had destroyed its chemical weapons, had dumped them largely um, at sea. And it was unclear with some of the comments from one of the then ministers of defence, Francis Pym, um, what the UK's position was, because they were obviously concerned about what Russia had or the former Soviet Union. Uh, and it looked as if the UK might be considering getting back into making chemical weapons again. So we decided that that had to be a no-no. And so that started my involvement. So that was in the early 1980s that I became actively involved in protesting against chemical weapons use, if you like. Thanks. So taking as a step back and looking at the era we're talking about here. This is the early 1980s, so it was pre the Chemical Weapons Convention. Uh, we'd had the Biological Weapons Convention negotiated and agreed, uh, but there were also some issues around uh, compliance there, particularly with the Soviet Union. And it was a time at which it really was the height of stockpiling chemical weapons as well as offensive research. And of course, the US were also in the process of destroying some stockpiles uh, during that era. And so it was a very different world. I mean, today we have this global prohibition, but at that point we didn't. It strikes me that this era was a kind of coming together of the broader, you know, kind of May 68 type era and the pushback against some of the security state apparatus uh, with a, a greater cognizance of biological and chemical weapons within the general public. And I think this is also linked, of course, to broader understanding of the environmental impacts of, of chemistry and industrial chemistry more broadly as well and it was agent orange as you said was your one of your earliest uh, topics that you became interested in so would you be able to introduce that issue and, and talk about how you became involved in it and the type of work you, you did on that well what it started out to be was very much uh, be informing myself about agent orange and for for listeners, Agent Orange was a herbicide that was used in Vietnam. It was a mixture of two individual herbicides, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, which are the sort of summary names. They were herbicides that were used very widely um, in agriculture. They had first been trialed by the British uh, in um, Malaya um, in what was then called the emergency, as far as the UK was concerned. 
And um, so the Americans had seen the effectiveness of these herbicides. And so they were used extensively in Vietnam to clear rights of way, to clear spaces around military bases, to deny the Vietnamese enemy, as the Americans considered them, any cover. But the herbicides that were used in Vietnam were used at about 10 times the concentration that we used normally. They effectively are plant hormones that um, encourage leaf growth and leaf fall. Uh, they're called, the mimicked on plant hormones called auxins. They were used very effectively, but what the Americans uh, or the United States were saying was that these were chemicals that affected plants, but not people. Unfortunately, in the manufacture of one of these components of the herbicide, it was called Agent Orange because orange was the banding around one of the drums. It was painted orange. There were others that had white and blue and purple around them. But Agent Orange was the one that was used most extensively. But in the manufacture of the 1245T, there was a byproduct that was made. And if the temperature control in the manufacturing process was not good enough, you get this other product produced called dioxin. In, in short, it's a much longer chemical name. And this had been shown in a number of studies to cause malformations in animals. Eventually, that information was leaked. Scientists became aware of it, and then that was used um, to put pressure on the American government because it was clear that these were products that didn't just affect plants. They could also have a serious impact on people, and certainly in the amounts that were being sprayed in Vietnam. And, and so it was this collation of information that um, I was using. I was largely writing um, about it. I wasn't doing any major talks or campaigning. So it was about informing people about this. And I, I went to Vietnam on a couple of occasions as well, once on a scholarship from the Science Journal Nature to talk to people about this. I was also doing some teaching and training out there um, in laboratories. Um, so I went out to teach a group how to measure vitamins in local foods because they were interested in, um, in doing that. And uh, so I used the, the combination um, of various things on the visit to do some teaching, to do some training, to do interviews, then to gather information for a number of features, which I then wrote for the journal on my return. So it was informing myself, if you like, about these things, but also learning about the history, um, how Agent Orange had uh, first been used, where, how effective it was, um, how it was used um, to enable the military to do what it was. So if you like, that formed the sort of background for my eventual involvement in the broader campaign against chemical weapons. But that, that initial period was much more academic and journalistic, if you like. It was about um, just briefing myself and then using that information to try and inform others. Thanks. And as I recall, this was an issue that continued to garner attention well after the end of the Vietnam War, um, not only uh, for those exposed to the agent in Vietnam and, and Cambodia, I think, as well, 
but also to, to veterans of the US and Allied forces who had been exposed to it and had long-term uh, health complications as a result of this exposure. And this is something that you continue to, to follow in your career, is that right? Well, uh, yes, to an extent. Be- because I'd informed myself, if you like, and I, my background um, in, in increasingly in toxicology, I mean, it was a, I was a sort of nascent uh, toxicologist at that stage. I ended up giving evidence to a a royal commission in Australia looking at the effects of Agent Orange on Australian servicemen who spent time in Vietnam because the concern was um, not about the major herbicide, the 245T or the 24D, which were the components of Agent Orange, but this dioxin compound. And dioxin um, is much more resistant to breakdown. So its residence time in the body, for you, if you like, is decades because um, every chemical disappears from the body over um, a number of half-lives. So the half-life is the time the concentration falls by half. And you need about six half-lives, roughly, for the chemical to get down to less than 1%. Now, dioxin has a half-life of in, in the body of the average of about seven years or thereabouts. So it can be there for a very long time. Um, and there were increasing studies showing that dioxin had other health effects other than just malformation uh, in, in animals. And, and so there was concern about the health impact on veterans, but also the Vietnamese were concerned about the health impact on their population. So I gave evidence to an Australian Royal Commission um, looking at this from an uncomfortable two and a half days being grilled by very experienced QCs. I would be much, much better now, really. Um, I've been in court quite a few times since then <laughs> and would be much better able to, to deal with things. But the sweat ran down my back and down my spine on a number of occasions, really, as I was being pinned down on things. And then I also gave evidence in the United States um, uh, as the American United States veterans were campaigning for compensation. So that was a deposition over uh, effectively two days. And that case was eventually settled out of court. So I didn't end up in court. But I've also given evidence against um, one of the companies, Monsanto, which has now been taken over by another German company, Bayer. But Monsanto made the components for Agent and there were concerns by some of the workers for Monsanto. They brought a case um, and I gave evidence on their behalf as well. So I've been in court a a few times over the involvement, if you like, in collection of information on Agent Orange. So a technical question. You say that dioxin uh, survives for a long time in the environment and within human tissue. Where does it reside within the human body and how does it reside there for so long? Uh, It it largely resides in fat. Um, So it it stays in adipose tissue and we have, you know, fat stores all around the body and that's largely uh, where it resides. And then it comes out from the fat uh, very, very slowly. There are variations between different species and and the rate at which it's metabolised. But I mean, not a, a huge difference. Because of its particular structure, it has 
four chlorine atoms. The technical name is 2378 tetrachloro. That's mm. four chlorines dioxin. And it's the position of these chlorine atoms which makes the molecule very resistant to breakdown, which is why it spends so long in our bodies. So it's interesting. I mean, going back to the 1920s and 1930s, I know that uh, the popular chemist Haldane had some very strong views on chemical weapons. He was an advocate of them and, and questioned whether or not these things were any worse than conventional explosives, for example. Uh, he took aim at H.G. Wells, who had argued in his uh, sci-fi work, A Shape of Things to Come, that there were certain chemical weapons he imagined that had very long-term environmental effects. I mean, he argued that they could make certain areas unlivable. But what is interesting about the Vietnam conflict is that, you know, in some respects, H.G. Wells was right. Uh, there were long-term effects on the population and environment. Uh, these things hung around for decades. And I know that there's still work going on now on, on the presence of dioxin in certain areas that were exposed. Absolutely. Just as it resides in the fat in our bodies, it's a chemical which breaks down in the environment very, very slowly. I mean, ideally, you you know shine ultraviolet light on it. If it's on the surface, it will help it to degrade. But once it gets into soils, it gets into microorganisms, moves up the food chain. You know, that, that's why one is concerned about it. But because it's so fat soluble, it ends up in fat stores and membranes and what have you in, in all sorts of organisms um, and wildlife. Uh, and so it, it can be there for a long time. And if the quantity that was deposited is significant, so these might be around storage dumps where the herbicide was kept, different military bases. You might have a large concentration um, and the area might have been a bit more denuded. Uh, and so it could be present for a much longer time. The Vietnamese were very concerned about the impact um, on people. Um, there were some studies done in Vietnam comparing people um, or, or women and the, the children born deformed both before Agent Orange was used and after it was used. Uh, and um, the numbers showed an almost tenfold increase in malformation after Agent Orange had been used. The problem with that research is that in the earlier period, there was such a stigma to having a child who was born deformed. So many of the cases were never recorded. People were embarrassed about having a child like that, kept it quiet. And so you ended up comparing very different things. So the increase that was seen after Agent Orange had been used and which the Vietnamese government made great play about and said, you know, this is the cause of your babies being deformed. So don't feel embarrassed, come forward. Um, and this allowed people to, to document, you know, uh, and have recognition that their child was born deformed. It was nothing to do with them personally. And so you had an increase in the numbers, but that meant that you, you were comparing essentially apples and oranges. Mm. And, and so 
that issue about whether there's been a real impact on children's health uh, and babies born deformed has never really been satisfactorily answered. It required a different kind of investigation, but unfortunately, um, Agent Orange became part of the politics, if you like, yeah. and the Vietnamese quite rightly, in my view, because I saw some of the environmental damage and it was huge. The Vietnamese used that to campaign against the Americans. And so if there was any possibility, which there might be that, you know, the results didn't turn out quite how you wanted them to. Some of that detailed investigation was was never done. And so it remained a sort of political thing with the, you know, many people believing that Agent Orange was definitely the cause of the problem. But sadly, there are many, many aspects of that where we just don't have the evidence. So the Agent Orange issue was was very expansive and you followed that for a, a long time. Another issue that you became interested in, I know you, you wrote on, is perhaps more marginal uh, in the history of chemical and biological warfare, uh, but certainly fascinating from my perspective. And that is the Yellow Rain affair. And I wonder if you could... Tell us about what that was, as well as your involvement in the issue. Yellow Rain was um, the sort of acronym that was given to the allegation by um, the United States um, that the Soviet Union and or client states or supporters of the Soviet Union were using in Southeast Asia to harm people. So there was this allegation that um, some kind of chemical weapon was being used. Um, and some early investigations suggested that it might be some kind of fungal toxin, the mycotoxin that was being used. And there were a number of samples collected by Different investigators, some academic, well, largely academic, and they found these toxins. And the one type of toxin was called a T2 toxin. But when the toxicology of these things was looked at in more detail, it was quite clear that these were not particularly toxic toxins, if you yeah. like. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like a tautology, really. Yeah. <laughs> you expect all toxins to be toxic, but there are degrees of toxicity. Yeah. And one colleague, Matthew Musselson, made a lovely comment saying, you know, if you were dropping T2 toxins on people, it would be much more effective dropping bricks on them. Uh, and um, so that, you know, puts the toxicity of these um, toxins into some kind of perspective. Anyway, the, the evidence was unclear at the moment. Um, the, the Americans were trying to collect that evidence. It was made very public because and the then Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, on a trip to Berlin, uh, made a very public announcement about this. The Russians refuted this, said, you know, we'd never, ever do anything so dastardly, you know. <laughs> so I interviewed different Russian um, scientists about this. I mean, I wrote about it. But I then also, at one point during all this in in the it would be the early 1980s, came across a Chinese researcher who had reported on what was basically um, bees on cleansing flights. 
And in the 1970s, when he had done his work, he showed that bees, they don't defecate in their hives. They defecate when they leave the hives and, and on the initial flight. And so when they're flying out of the hive, if they're moving out, you know, as a, as a whole um, colony, there's a lot of bee excrement that's dropped. And it subsequently turned out that what was being claimed to be this awful mycotoxin weapon was in fact nothing other than bee shit because the evidence that was being collected contained pollen, these yellow droplets that were very glutinous. So many people uh, and some people in Laos as well brought evidence forward and you could see these yellow droplets um, on, on, on leaves. When these were examined, they were shown to contain pollen, but it was pollen from local vegetation. But not only was it just pollen from local vegetation, the pollen had no protein inside it which is when pollen goes through the gut of a bee, the, the protein gets removed and you just end up with the husk. And so what you were then looking at as um, an alleged chemical weapon was a very glutinous material. Now, glutinous material does not vaporize readily. I mean, mm. it's, you know, stays sticky, really. So you just end up with drops. But this contained pollen from local trees with no protein in it. So if it was going to be a chemical weapon, really what you would have to do, you would have to go around all the local trees, harvest the pollen, you know, put it through a special process to remove the protein from inside it, and then construct it in something that really you would have had to have dropped it in like jars of honey for it to be very effective because it, it was just not going to, you know, kill anybody. So the yellow rain episode was then seriously dismissed because many defence laboratories, particularly those in Australia, but in the UK, our Porton labs and so on, you know, confirmed all this, that really it, it was just a misnomer, that there was no yellow rain chemical weapon as such. And had it gone to court, I mean, the American position would never have stood up. It was an interesting allegation, historically speaking as well, because, of course, it predated the establishment of the UN Secretary General's investigative mechanism, which, in principle, would be something that would come into play in the cases of such allegations today. What I found particularly interesting as well is that, you know, this was the height of the Cold War, so in addition to this absence of an ability to resolve this technically, there was also geopolitical factors at play which impacted upon uh, the ability of states to agree you know, what had happened here. Absolutely. And you have to remember that this came hard on the heels of the incident at Sverdlovsk in the Soviet Union, where there was the release of anthrax from a military facility which the then Soviet Union said, um, yes, it, it was anthrax, but it was interstinal anthrax, and this had caused the deaths of the people. But fortunately, many of the pathologists involved and the Russian side 
kept all of the tissue samples and Matthew Mathelson with some colleagues was able subsequently to go back and work with the pathologist and show that it was definitely a plume of anthrax which seemed to have originated from a military facility which had been released and ended up in the deaths of some 60 to 80 people. I forget the exact number now. So these things get conflated. So the, the United States always suspected that the release of anthrax was from a military facility. Some other scientists were skeptical about the time, but eventually that was shown to be the case. So the US had grounds for suspicion, if, if you like. It's just they uh, got it very wrong with yellow rain. And I remember reading about this retrospectively, and obviously, as you noted, there was two routes of exposure that were considered and discussed um, as the Russians had initially claimed that the exposure would come via ingestion of infected meat rather than inhalational exposure. That was shown not to be the case, and, and the quip, of course, would have been made that, you know, unless unless the victims had inhaled the meat, uh, that the Russian story was was nonsense. We then move to the period in the era of the Iran-Iraq war, which occurred between 1980 and uh, 1988. And so I wonder if you could talk me through uh, your engagement with the use of chemical warfare agents by the Iraqis in that conflict. Well, um, the, the 1980s was when I really got involved in campaigning against chemical weapons generally. And that my colleagues, um, it was largely Julian Perry Robinson here, but the, a number of other colleagues um, from social sciences, particularly a, a woman, Elizabeth Sigmund. I mean, we, we formed a group called the Working Party Against Chemical Weapons. And we, I, this was at a period when I was informing myself about what was going on. What we had our sights on was stopping the use of chemical weapons. And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, there were these huge arsenals in both the United States and the Soviet Union and other countries had chemical weapons stocks. And some of these are so toxic, some of the chemical weapons, the nerve agents that had they been used in a conflict in Europe uh, and that was in the 1980s, that was still a very real possibility. There would have been tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of deaths, if not more, and many injuries. So we wanted to see these things removed as a possibility for use on the battlefield. And so it was a case of campaigning against American plans to change their arsenal, to um, make some more helpful on the battlefield that were less persistent, that would enable um, the military to move into an area more readily after the weapons had been used. And so we were campaigning against more production, but we were also trying to make people aware of what these things did. And then in the Iraq-Iran war, the Iraqis used chemical weapons against the Iranians. They used a variety of chemical weapons. They used one that was first developed for use in the First World War, mustard gas, which causes horrific skin injuries, but as well as internal injuries. And so the Iranians, being very politic, um, sent quite a lot of their injured soldiers to hospitals abroad. A, they wanted good treatment for them. 
but B, they also wanted to publicize what was happening and the use of these weapons. And so I saw all of the individuals who came to the UK between about 1985, 86 and 88. I didn't medically examine them because I'm not competent um, to do that, but they all agreed for me to see them, talk to them, find out about what was going on and to talk about it and to publicize it. So I did. Uh, we got a lot of media coverage uh, at the time. And we used that because what we wanted to do was say, look, this is what these things do. Really, these should not be used as weapons against the military at all. But heaven forbid, if they're used against civilians, you know, the military generally have some sort of protection against these things, protective suits and gas masks, but civilians have none. Um, and if they're used against civilians, they will be absolutely devastating. Then, of course, they were used against civilians. In previous conflicts, they had been chemical weapons had largely affected the military. But then the Iraqis and Saddam Hussein attacked the Kurdish community in Iraq and used chemical weapons so effectively. And they attacked one city in particular, Halabja. So this was during what was called the Anfal campaign. And they were systematically at attacking uh, the Kurds and the Kurds were fleeing from areas where the uh, attacks had occurred. The city of Halabja was swollen with refugees. And so the Iraqis bombed it initially. So what you do when somebody drops a bomb on you, you, you go to shelters, you, you, you go into basements and so on anywhere to get away from the bombs. And of course, with people hiding in cellars, they then dropped chemical weapons. Now, chemical weapons largely affect through being a vapor. They, they vaporize very readily. So it's a bit like a fly spray, if you like. And these vapors are much heavier than air. So they go into all depressions. And so people hiding in basements were asphyxiated, they were poisoned with, with these things because the chemicals just percolated into all of these areas. And an estimated 5,000 people died in Halabja from the effects of these weapons in this one day, the 17th of March, 1988. And there were about 12,000 who were injured, some of whom came to the UK. And I saw some of those uh, in hospital, talked to them, and it just you know, it was this range of people who were affected and that they were, they were civilians. And so we capitalized on that and we said, look what these things do. And then subsequently, I got a, a chance to be involved in an investigation on two subsequent occasions in Iraq. I didn't do the actual trekking, if you like, to get the samples. But on one occasion, I worked with a colleague, Gwyn Roberts, and he was doing a program for Channel 4. We discussed about sample collection, about his safety, what you would need to do to bring the samples back. And he brought samples back and we showed that they contained mustard gas. We had two independent laboratories, one a private one, one work done at Porton Down, our chemical defence establishment. And they showed the presence of mustard gas uh, and breakdown products. So the Iraqis were denying that these weapons were being used. And we had evidence here. And we, it was well documented where these things were collected. 
and the chain of custody from Iraq to the labs was very clear and could be proved. And then subsequently, I was involved with another investigation with the group Physicians for Human Rights and Middle East Watch. And they collected samples in Iraq in 1992 um, from a village area. Um, and I coordinated the transport of those samples to make sure we had a chain of custody, which we could demonstrate that nobody could interfere with these samples. And I persuaded our then chemical defense establishment and its director, Graham Pearson, was very helpful to analyze these samples. And the UK was very keen to do that at that time. And the scientist Robin Black, who did the work, showed that it was nerve agent that was present in some of the samples and breakdown products. He actually found sarin um, in one um, fragment from an munition and that there was also mustard gas. Now, these were samples that had been collected four years after the munitions had been detonated. So we wanted to make a noise about that. So I went to New York to publicize it. Graham Pearson, the director of Horton Down, did it in the UK and we did it simultaneously. Me at 10 a.m. in the US, him at 3 p.m. in the United States. And we wanted to send out a message. If you use chemical weapons, you can, we can still find the evidence of their use. And this was four years later. So don't think you can get away with it. You know, people will find that evidence. Uh, and that got a lot of coverage. That was my initial involvement in my first two investigations, if you like. I was involved in two other major investigations of the use of chemical weapons. One was um, in Bosnia, and this was people fleeing from Srebrenica. Uh, uh, there were allegations from the Bosnians that the Serbs had used chemical weapons against them. And the evidence pointed to, to the use of a possible hallucinogen. Now, just to put this in context, Srebrenica was a town in what was the con an area of conflict that was protected by the UN, but the Serbs surrounded it. The UN uh, allowed access by the Serbs. The Bosnians in there were frightened um, about their safety or for their safety. Women and children were bussed away. The men were left. The men decided that they had to um, leave and they marched towards Bosnia. It was about 100 miles. And they were constantly shelled by the Serbs. The Serbs caught many of them and massacred some eight to 10,000 of them. A number of the Bosnian soldiers reached Bosnia. And a year later, I went there to do an investigation and to interview some 35 of them who had been on the march. And I went out on behalf of Human Rights Watch. The conclusion I came to in the end Although when I was interviewing them, it seemed likely that something had been used. The conclusion I came to in the end was that what people were experiencing was the effects of extreme stress. The hallucinations, the occasional suicide were just the result of people at the extremes of what people can put up with. Most had not gone to sleep or had any sleep for days on end. They were dehydrated. They had very little food. They were desperate to get away, fearful for their lives at all times. And there is evidence out there in the literature to support that. And I 
I wrote, I published that. I, I did a report for Human Rights Watch. That report was a little more equivocal than when I subsequently did my own publication on that. I made it clear that I thought the evidence pointed to the effects on individuals were those who were under extreme stress. There was, I, I sent my data and my conclusions to a group in Belgium, um, the chemical weapons group there, and they had a meeting. They convened a number of psychologists there and they came back and they said, yes, we agree with you. That's what we think the findings point to. I was involved in one other investigation in Kosovo. And there were allegations that are not dissimilar to what happened with the women more recently in Iran. Um, but in this investigation in Kosovo, there were many people involved and they were alleging that a chemical weapon had been used. Largely people were collapsing. It was mainly young women, but they recovered very quickly and within 24 hours they were fine. We did lots of investigations. We interviewed between and examined between 80 and 100 people. We collected blood samples from them. I coordinated all of the analysis of the blood samples. We found nothing. And in the end, we concluded that what they were reporting, and there were many people affected, sometimes as far as 200 miles distant. So coming up with a scenario to explain that was really difficult. And in the event, we concluded that it was what was called epidemic mass hysteria. That's now usually called mass sociogenic illness, really, to get away from the pejorative hysteria um, element of it. So I have that background where some investigations have confirmed something, some where I've dug more deeply into the evidence and concluded otherwise. So I did some training for the OPCW before they invent the, the mechanism in place now for investigations formally. And um, so just to make the inspectors aware about how carefully, you know, you have to sift your evidence. And particularly if you're going to allege somebody did something and identify that individual. So just to take a step back and return to the timeline we're working along here, we started back in I guess it was the tail end of the 1970s, and we've moved on through into the early to mid 1990s, and, and things have changed a lot during that time in, in terms of geopolitics and also um, international institutions. And the Bosnian case, for example, was happening at the time during which the Chemical Weapons Convention was being negotiated and coming into force. But I guess it wouldn't be another sort of 25 years until the OPCW would face its first real major challenge in relation to the question of use. And this would come from Syria, uh, with allegations emerging as early as 2012. Now, Syria wasn't a member state at the time initially, uh, but in 2013, following the Ghouta attacks, and then uh, following the destruction of the majority of its stocks, its membership would, of course, be troubled uh, by continued allegations and proven use of agents such as chlorine uh, in the Syrian civil war. And so I, I wondered if you'd be happy to talk about uh, the use of uh, chemical weapons in the Syrian conflict, uh, as well as your involvement and perspective on how the story emerged, and in particular, uh, your work in relation to the OPCW. When the Syrians used chemical weapons 
in the uh, attack in, in Ghouta, there were some 12 to 1500 people possibly killed in that. So we're talking about 2013. The OPCW was an entity, as you mentioned, uh, and um, its inspectors um, had not been able to, if you like, put their boots on the ground and do physical uh, inspections before this. I was asked to do some training of the inspectors, which I did with a number of other colleagues from defence laboratories, uh, including our UK um, Port and Down. And it was to talk about essentially my experience. In, in fact, what I'd looked for, the difficulties involved in in, in collecting the samples and the, the analysis. So we had, you know, seminars and tutorials um, just to, to, to go over that. The OPCW now has unrivaled experience, really, and expertise because they they are so good at what they do now. But also sort of in the preparation and the, and the collection of that information, a whole variety of other things um, that you are concerned about. Obviously, inspectors need to have access to an area that may be denied by the the one or the country that's being accused. So how do you get samples out? What do people in areas um, that are being attacked do? So I was involved with two different groups doing some training of, of doctors and others who were um, in, involved in areas that were being attacked by the Syrian regime. So the one lot of training I did was uh, in Turkey and over a three day period. And it was talking about the effects of these weapons, what they do, what protection would work, but also how to collect samples. And you mentioned earlier that I like teaching. I love teaching, um, but my teaching is generally it, it's active and interactive. I want my audience engaged uh, and involved and, and, and having some fun at the same time. So. I was training them on how to collect samples. And I thought, how am I going to do this? idea and there was some building work going on outside this hotel that we were staying in so I, I got a couple of colleagues to go out and collect several plastic bags of soil from one of the ditches and they brought it in I put paper down on on the uh, the carpet sprinkled all the soil around got an old bucket to simulate um, a, a destruct a, a weapon that had been destroyed got a teaspoon walked all over the soil and collected samples with my teaspoon, put them into plastic bags, bent them over and said, right, I've got my sample now. I'm going to send it off to the laboratory. How valid do you think the results are going to be? Were there any problems in how that sample was collected? And of course, you know, I'd walked all over the evidence. I'd contaminated things. I'd used a spoon that I hadn't cleaned between um, sample collection and the audience just tore me to pieces. They just said, you know, they pointed out absolutely everything that was wrong about it. And I said, OK, guys, right. Now, having seen that, how do we construct a protocol um, to enable us to get samples that you could go to a court of law and say this is a genuine result and this sample was collected properly? And, and so they did. And samples that some of those individuals I was later informed, provided samples to later investigations by the OPCW. 
And so you never quite know when your some of your teaching things are going to, you know, bear fruit. But that was one example. And then I also did another training session in Oman in Jordan for doctors who came from another part of Syria. And I did that under the auspices of a group I'd worked with previously, Physicians for Human Rights. So I was trying to help people on the ground, if you like. I had the advantage of being distant from the conflict, but at least I could pass on some of the information that I knew. And of course, the politics around the OPCW's investigations uh, got very complicated and fractious very quickly as a result of the geopolitics around it. But one thing that is is clear to me is that in the 20 or 30 years since the OPCW was established, it was the extent to which its infrastructure emerged and developed and the expertise and standards that were available to that organisation and its capability had developed. We are you know, now in a very different world to what we were when we had allegations in the 1980s. I guess then this takes me to you know, a question about how things have changed in a substantive sense uh, since you were campaigning for this prohibition in the 1980s. Not to embarrass you too much, but I went back and looked at your book, No Fire, No Thunder, as long as the work by Elizabeth Sigmund in this era, which were campaign books uh, calling for global prohibition on chemical weapons and strengthening of the biological weapons prohibition. What was interesting is at that point, there was a clear battle line in the sense that there was a necessity for a ban and a global treaty banning these weapons. And I think it's difficult to argue that what's happened since hasn't been a you know, great international success in terms of the type of verification systems, in particular the Chemical Weapons Convention, has. There's probably, of course, however, still work to be done, perhaps of a different nature and perhaps where the battle lines aren't quite so clearly drawn. And so I wondered if you'd be happy to talk a little bit about what you think the character of the challenges are today uh, to prevent uh, the use and maybe the term re-emergence is unhelpful, but to return to a place where chemical weapon stockpiling was the norm, for example, and how to ensure that they continue to be marginalised as an aspect of warfare. I campaigned for the Chemical Weapons Convention and it came into force uh, in 1997 and I do everything I can now to support it. So I, I get involved with um, OPCW running workshops to train young chemists, other young scientists in science diplomacy, but also around aspects of uh, chemical weapons use. And that enables me to do the sort of teaching and to use the active engagement techniques uh, that I like doing. But I see it as absolutely vital that the Chemical Weapons Convention is seen as a living document, that it's protecting all of us. It requires inspections of industry. And I chair a Chemical Weapons Convention advisory committee in the UK that brings all of the different government departments together and those involved in the chemical implementing the chemical weapons convention in government together along with chemical industry and, and academe uh, and i see it as absolutely crucial that um, we support the chemical weapons convention 
sadly, it, it doesn't get the sort of coverage, if you like, that one would like to see. It, for me, it's a hugely effective regime. There are only four countries in the world outside it. Those who are party to it, by and large, um, observe it. They agree to inspections. But there are clearly still violations, uh, and those violations, sadly, have been by Russia. The attack on um, the Skripals in the UK in which nerve agent was used, and it was clear that it was an unusual nerve agent called a Novichok. And fortunately, the Skripals survived, but they did that because they had fantastic medical care and prompt treatment uh, in the UK. And then there was the attack on the, the Russian uh, dissident politician, uh, Alexei Navalny, and that was with a different Novichok chemical. But the Novichoks are nerve agents and uh, more resistant to breakdown. They hadn't been part of any arsenal before. So if you like, they, they, they caught um, governments a little bit unawares but chemical defense establishments have very good detection systems in the laboratories. And so these chemicals were identified um, readily. But there are huge challenges now. If you like, all they could do, uh, the OPCW was brought in to confirm, if you like, what happened to the Skripals. It did its own investigation, supported what the UK had found. And similarly, with what happened to Navalny, he was treated in Germany and OPCW was involved in some validation there. So the OPCW has been able to confirm what has happened. The issue is around, and this is still not resolved, what do you do about those uh, countries that break the rules? Syria has been shown it was dragged kicking and screaming to join the Chemical Weapons Convention, and that was used. Its joining was used as a means of disarming Syria in terms of its chemical weapons capabilities. But also there are, you know, some would allege that because nobody, no, there was no military intervention, Syria has got away with things. But anyway, Syria became party to the Chemical Weapons Convention, clearly has not adhered to it. And the OPCW has been very explicit about this on a number of occasions, saying that Syria has not complied. The issue is really what you do about those who are prepared to break the rules. Do you still keep them in? It was a previous American president who summed up the issue very well, uh, President Johnson. And it was about those who break the rules. Do you have them inside the tent, to put it in a less um, explicit way, urinating out, or do you have them outside urinating in? And, and this issue is still unresolved, really. But by and large, I look at the Chemical Weapons Convention and I see it as a huge success. The chemical industry agrees to the inspections. They're intrusive. Countries have to apply, uh, supply information to the OPCW about whole categories of chemicals that they make, export and import. And that information is then analysed by the OPCW and inspections are organised to check that industry is compliant and companies get short notice that they're going to be inspected. And these inspections are about establishing that what was supplied to the OPCW was truthful and they work incredibly well.
But we know that that's about chemical weapons that have been declared and uh, those have been destroyed and the destruction has been verified by the OPCW. Certain industries are being investigated, again, with information that is voluntarily supplied by governments. You always have the suspicion that, you know, if they want to hide something, could they do it? It's easy, much, much easier to make chemicals surreptitiously now. It's much easier to have a much smaller footprint um, to make things. If you were making stuff in quantities to be used by a military in a war, I think that would be detected. But could you make stuff and much smaller quantities to use in, in less obvious ways, or more surreptitiously? Yes, I'm sure you could. So I think the um, Chemical Weapons Convention relies on being honest. It relies certainly on the chemical industry supporting it, and it's, the industry is doing that in a magnificent way, I think, at the moment. But there are always going to be these tensions there. Uh, and I think for me, my role for helping OPCW is to talk to young chemists. Um, chemical weapons can only be made if you make them deliberately. So it's a choice that chemists face. So I hope chemists would be persuaded that this is not the thing to do. And this is why I'm involved in all sorts of discussions with young chemists around ethics and so on. But, you know, it, it's about what people are prepared to do. If you remember in the First World War, so back, we're talking about 1914, 1918, chemists supported the development of chemical weapons. You know, both sides were using it. Uh, and, and chemists were very involved in making and developing these weapons. That ethos does not exist now. You, you find that all chemical societies, either individual academic ones or um, uh, in, international organizations of chemists, international organizations of the chemical industry or international organizations involved in the trade of chemicals, all support the Chemical Weapons Convention and don't want to see chemical weapons used. So across the spectrum of chemists, there is no desire to ever get back to make chemical weapons. And one hopes that that remains the case. And it's about promoting the Chemical Weapons Convention. And we're trying in all sorts of ways. And there are even more modules and other um, things being developed by OPCW to try and publicize the Chemical Weapons Convention, because I think it needs to be something that people recognize as there will support its existence because it just means that a particular category of weapon, which is so devastating, uh, will not be used again. Um, and to ensure that that's the case, you have to keep talking about it and you have to keep owning up to your mistakes, uh, but also talking about how you can prevent this use and how you might go about doing that. Um, and so those are all things that I try and help the OPCW with now. So listening to you speak on this, I, what comes to mind to me is this idea that, you know, a prohibition is a process, not an outcome. And that, you know, it's very easy to uh, to forget uh, the fact that this prohibition was never guaranteed and required work initially to come into place and still requires struggle in a sense to ensure it is maintained in lots of different forms of, of work. Fantastic. Well, thanks for that, Alistair. I, I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you today and I've, I've got a lot out of it and hopefully our listeners uh, will have 
two. Um, so just to wish you all the best. And I look forward to following uh, the various bits and pieces you're involved in uh, with interest. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I, I have enjoyed the discussion and it's been interesting sort of going back into those um, archives in my head, really. And so not often I get the opportunity to do that in the way that you've invited me to. So thank you very much for asking me. I, I feel really quite privileged to have done this. Thank you.